When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Smith Galtney. And I start walking around feeling like sexy and I'm just like, all right, y'all, let's do this. Which is kind of a problem when you're in Walmart. (laughs) That and more. But before that, did you know that Risk is also on Twitter and Facebook? Both places we are at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I am at the Kevin Allison. So follow us because we do so much in those places that you're not going to want to miss out on. We share photos. We point you to videos. We point you to other stuff that people on the show have shared about in other places. We do Facebook live chats. We call for stories. We call for people's reactions to stories. We engage in conversations with people in those places. Right now, for example, we're calling for Halloween sorts of stories. If you have a scary story, a ghost story, a, a uh, just a crazy thing that once happened to you on Halloween night, write to us at wristshowcom slash submissions and just make sure that you follow us and you have your friends follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show and on Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. I also want to let you know that Risk is brought to you today by Squarespace. It's the all-in-one website platform. Squarespace sites look gorgeous. They look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. There's no coding required. It's intuitive with easy-to-use tools. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. They're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. So start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code RISK to get 10% off your first purchase. The offer code is RISK. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk. 
the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Ratatat behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Raging. <laughs> it feels like a, a pretty appropriate title for this particular time of this particular year. It is October 10th today. And my goodness, so many of us are so emotionally wound up in the craziest election ever. The craziest presidential election in American history with the Republican nominee must be the worst nominee for anything ever in world history, it feels like. Some mobster who ran for dog catcher in Hoboken in 1901 was probably a better candidate. Now, today's episode consists of three stories told before live audiences, one in Los Angeles, one in Richmond, Virginia, and one in New York City. And all three of these stories, well, they have their laughs, but they they stay on the more serious side of the spectrum. We decided to take our raging seriously today. And we're going to start with Milana Vaintrub, who told this story at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. We have a monthly show there at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. The next one is October 15th. Now, Milana, you've seen her on At Midnight on Comedy Central, but she's also the director of a phenomenal documentary. It's about the current refugee crisis. You can find it at can'tdonothing.org. Here she is now at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles, Milana Vaintrub, with a story we call Seeing Red. So much. I'm so so happy to be here, um, especially to talk about raging because I am such an angry person. <laughs> um, when I was in ninth grade, my English teacher told me that there are two kinds of Russian women, um, which is uh, kind of what I am. I'm from the former Soviet Union. Um, there are two kinds. There are the women that fought during World War II, and those were like the pilots, the snipers, the machine gunners, the tank crew members, and then there were the women that at that time were the prima ballerinas. And she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, Milana, you are a fighter. And I said, don't fucking touch me, I'm delicate. <laughs> I'm an actress, I'm a performer, okay? And I'm like anti-war, I fucking love peace. <laughs> I wanted to be the kind of Russian woman that could be a ballerina. I equate them to like modern day nail art bloggers. <laughs> um, like, yes, there is a war happening everywhere in the world right now between countries and races and religions, classes, you name it. There are people fighting on the front lines for justice. Also, there are people posting about a daily manicure. 
And they're important too because they bring a little bit of beauty and distraction and joy to people's lives and that makes a difference. I've really only recently come to terms with the fact that I'll never be a ballerina and I'll probably never be a nail art enthusiast. <laughs> it might have something to do with the fact that I grew up with a lot of fighting around me. Uh, we lived in a neighborhood with many loud and aggressive immigrants from all over the place, from Poland and Israel, Russia, Hungary, Uzbekistan. And it wasn't rare that there were police cars on my street or um, that the kids in my neighborhood park had black eyes or that so-and-so could no longer see daddy because he fought too loudly with mommy. I mean, if you can imagine, if I can kind of like take you into the lives of the people that were in my neighborhood, first imagine that your home is so bad that you decide to leave your job, your family, and everyone you ever knew in search of a better place. A place that is even called the land of opportunity. And then when you get there, you find that learning the language is pretty hard, um, but you're told that you would be welcome there. So, you know, you gotta feed your kid. So if you're lucky, you find a job that's labor intensive and maybe demeaning and maybe you're talked down to, I don't know. The hardest part is you might not feel welcome. You might feel looked down upon, you might feel tired from the job and unheard and insignificant. I really can't fully understand how hard my parents had it, but I do understand that it's only natural for a person to fight back sometimes if they feel treated horribly or forgotten or unsafe. I hated violence, but because my neighbors were immigrants like me, I felt like they were on my side. They were the devil I knew, so I was safe. The only time I get in trouble is if I ratted someone out. Uh, lying and cheating were kind of fine depending on who I lied to and who I cheated. Like, if I lied to a teacher about, I don't know, maybe sneaking out to get McDonald's for lunch, that was fine. But if I ratted somebody out, like if I ratted out a friend or one of my neighbor kid friends or one of my cousins, I would be shamed and belted, and ironically, my mom would threaten to call the cops on me. <laughs> so, we immigrated from Tashkent, Uzbekistan when I was two, so LA is home for me, but for my family growing up in Uzbekistan, loyalty was currency. Most of my dad's youth was spent fixing cars and racing them, kind of like Fast and the Furious, but in the 70s, and Jewish, <laughs> in a Muslim country, he, um, he one time on a long car ride very casually told me about the time when he was 15 and cut off a man's ear. He said his friend's sister had been raped and a group of them got together to find the guy. They split up and my dad happened to be the one who found him. And when I asked why the ear, he said, why? You need someone's ear cut off? I do it for you easy, it's like butter. <laughs> And I said, no, no, I'm good. 
good. Um, but like, why all the fights in general? My dad said, when someone touched my family, I see red. Therapy's not really a thing in my family. <laughs> the year I moved back from college, my family got together at this popular Russian restaurant in West Hollywood that was just a couple blocks from where I grew up to celebrate my mom's birthday. And everyone was there, my grandparents and my aunts and my little cousins. My little sister was 10 years old at the time and the family dog was there too. My mom brought her everywhere. Her name is Zyosia. Um, and I think the reason my mom named the dog Zyosia is so that she could finally have something to correct an American's pronunciation. <laughs> like, try to say Zyosia. Nope. <laughs> so they would, someone would stop her on the street and be like, oh, what's the dog's name? And she'd go, Zosia. And they'd go, oh, Zosia? No, Zosia. Oh, Zosia. No. <laughs> and this would go on and on, back and forth. And, you know, my, my mom would eventually say, you know what, if you need something from the dog, go through me. <laughs> but getting together for my mom's birthday was this beautiful excuse for everyone to complain uh, about not getting together more often. So while we're eating and chatting, a table of young people all about my age sit next to us, which was very weird because they're not Russian, but they're at a Russian restaurant. They were um, extremely high. And I don't know on what, like, uh, they weren't drunk, they weren't stoned, but they were level 10 fucked up. Did you hear my Russian accent come out there? Level 10 fucked up. And they were loud and sloppy and cursing. And I had my little sister there, so uh, my mom comes up to them and she goes, uh, excuse me, can you please keep the bad words uh, quiet? and they start making fun of my mom's accent back to her. Only I could do that. <laughs> and they said, oh, do you want us to be quiet? And <laughs> my mom is shocked and sad, and she walks back to the table, and I'm like, you know what, they're on drugs. Don't make anything out of it, don't pay attention but they continue to be really rowdy and obnoxious. And this is a pretty nice restaurant, and the wait staff eventually asks them to leave. But a few moments later, they bring out my mom's birthday cake, and we all start singing the Russian version of Happy Birthday, which um, is, is kind of like the American version, but it, it kind of goes like this. Happy birthday to you. It's slower, and you have to add a couple syllables in every word. <laughs> um, and one of the girls from that rowdy table gets up, and she's visibly angry. And maybe it's because they've just asked her to leave. Maybe it's because she hates the song as much as I do. But she takes her drink, and she spills it on my mom's cake while we're singing and all over my mom. And I'm like, oh, no. You shouldn't have done that. I have a father who sees red. 
And so my dad walks up to her. He's immediately sweating, and he gets inches away from her face. And my grandfather starts to drag him away. And uh, just a, a little bit about my grandfather. He, um, he's dressed, and he's always dressed this way, in a full tracksuit, a leather jacket, and dress shoes. <laughs> Which, it makes a lot of sense for his personality. He, the, the, the jacket is like for protection, like as though he was riding a motorcycle, except he doesn't. And um, the tracksuit is so that he could always be like my cuddly grandpa bear. And the dress shoes were so that he could just be fancy from the ankles down. <laughs> and um, my grandfather is now escorting my dad away from this girl. And she takes her glass and throws it at my grandfather and it hits him in the middle of the back. So I guess it made sense that he was wearing that leather jacket. <laughs> and it crashes on the ground. That was the first time that I understood what it was like to see red. And I knew that I was the only one that could take this girl. <laughs> my little sister was too little. My dad would go to jail so I went straight for the throat. <laughs> I don't remember how she got on the ground, but the next thing I recall was that I was holding on to her hair very tightly with one hand and punching her in the face with the other while repeatedly yelling, you touched my fucking grandfather? <laughs> The whole restaurant is freaking out at this point. The, the girl's other friends are all yelling. One of them takes off her shoes and jumps on the table, starts kicking things off of the table. Like, I don't know how she thought that would be helpful. But I am, oh, the, the, my mom's dog gets loose, Zyosia. And she runs up to me and she starts barking and I'm worried that in my rage, I will smack the dog. So I'm just yelling, Bree, grab the dog! <laughs> Bree's my little sister. And um, eventually somebody pulls me off of her and the restaurant calls the police. And um, these like fucked up kids get in a yellow beetle of all things. And they, they drive off, but not before somebody gets their plates. And then the police show up and everyone at the restaurant has my back because they're all Russian immigrants too. I mean, those high fuckers were bullying my mom for speaking differently at a restaurant full of and owned by people who speak the same kind of differently. <laughs> they all understood that it's natural for a person to fight back sometimes if they feel unsafe or treated horribly. My family told me I did the right thing, and they, I, they actually kind of congratulated me. And then we had dessert. Tell me. 
This is Risk. This is Kendra Morris behind me now. Now, I have been (laughs) tossing and turning a bit lately (laughs) due to all the stress. And uh, I couldn't be happier that we have just recently partnered with Lisa Mattress. L-E-E-S-A Mattresses. We ordered the mattress online. It came compressed in a box the size of a mini fridge. And I have never slept better. It is a truly beautiful mattress. It's it's an ingenious mattress. It's rated number one by Consumer Reports over all other direct-to-consumer foam mattresses. Number one, it's got a three-layer sleep technology. Lisa's perforated top layer keeps you cool and provides the perfect cushiony bounce. Lisa's memory foam middle layer cradles and contours perfectly to your body and Lisa's inner core provides long life durability and support. Lisa is 100% American made and built specifically for you using their universal adaptive feel sleep technology. You're guaranteed the best sleep ever. No more mattress store sales pressure or one-minute mattress auditions. Lisa is the Warby Parker of the mattress industry. They donate one mattress to a shelter for every 10 they sell. And Lisa gives you a 100-night risk-free trial. Love your mattress or they'll pick it back up for free and refund your money. Order now and save $75 when you go to lisa.com slash risk. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash risk and use the promo code risk at the checkout. Also, do you know about ZipRecruiter? Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job and find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, Risk listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. 
one more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from a very dear friend of mine going way back to my college days. Smith Galtney is a writer, a comedian, a photographer living in Maine. He's been published in the New York Times and Rolling Stone magazine. You can find him at smithgaltney.com. I'll talk a little bit more about Smith in a bit. But before that, we're going to hear from one of our favorites, one of our regulars, Mr. Ray Christian. I'll tell you, Ray has told stories for us in New York City, uh, in Carlboro, North Carolina. And now he told this one in Richmond, Virginia. We came to Richmond for the very first time, and he had a fan base there. There were people who knew Ray was telling a story who came out because they've heard him so much on Risk. Oh, it's just so exciting to see how well Ray has done with his storytelling since he started here on Risk. If you don't already know... Ray has his own podcast now. It's called What's Ray Saying? Look it up on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. What's Ray Saying? Very well worth checking out. Anyway, here is Ray Christian now at the Risk Live show in Richmond, Virginia, with a story we call The Long Ride. In 1976, I was a uh, 16-year-old high school wrestler, 185 pounds of pure muscle. And my only concern at that time, in this particular night, was how I was going to get back home as quick as I could and when I could get something to eat because I was so hungry. I had to catch the last bus to make a connection on Broad Street from Hillside Court. Now, at the time, that was the largest... uh, public housing project in the city of Richmond on the south side. Maybe it still is. Well, I got on the bus, and as the bus took off, I was the only person on the bus with the exception of one man who got on the bus. Now, he got up out of his seat, and he sat across from me. And because he was shuffling around in his seats and clearing his throat so much, I had to take a look at him. When I looked at the guy, I noticed right away that he was kind of soft, pudgy, effeminate looking. At the time, we would have said he was juicy. (laughs) So we get up to Broad Street. He get off the bus. He goes down the street, goes around the corner. I stand in front of the bus stop. A car pulls up in front of the bus stop. The guy leans over, hand rolls down his window, yells out, hey, you need a ride? You doing anything? You want to get into something? It's the guy from the bus. Now, I'm already confused as to why he's here. But at the same time, I'm not completely surprised by this because at this time on Broad Street, it was not unusual for hustlers to drive up and down the street when it was late and try to pick you up or something. But usually you could just blow them off with the wave of a hand. Or if you stared at them real hard, they was just driving off. But right about that time, the bus finally arrives and it stopped and it blows its horn. 
So I stand up and I move to get on the bus, but as soon as I do that, the bus takes off and it goes around the car and it's gone. I missed the last bus. So the guy, he's saying to me, hey man, you want to ride? You want to do something? You want to go somewhere? And I know right away that the guy's just a freak and he's looking for some action. But at the same time, I also know, hell, I don't really want to have to walk all the way back to Churchill. I could use the ride. And he's kind of soft and juicy. <laughs> and I'm a 185-pound wrestler. He can't do nothing. So I, you know, so with some hesitation, I said, okay, I'll take the ride. So as soon as we started driving, I noticed right away that the guy was going in the wrong direction. And several times I had to say to him, hey man, you're going the wrong way. And he would alter directions and I was starting to think to myself, now either this guy is just confused or he's intentionally trying to waste time. So we kept on driving and the guy kept insisting to me, hey, let's stop and get high. You want to get high? You want to smoke something? You want to get high? And then he just stopped on his own on the street in front of this big old street light. And that was safe enough, but I didn't really want to get high. What I wanted to do was get home. And I said to the guy, hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate the ride, but uh, what I really need to do is get home, man. My mama's probably worried about me. But he kept insisting, come on, man, let's get high. And the car wasn't moving anyway. So I said, okay, man, let's do it. Let's smoke it. Let's get high. So we're smoking, and after about five or ten minutes of coughing my lungs up with this guy, I'm not as concerned as I was ten minutes ago. In fact, I'm not worried at all. I'm kind of relaxed. The music is kicking. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, other than the fact that he talks too damn much, you know, he seemed kind of friendly, and obviously he can't do nothing. So then the guy starts saying to me, hey, let's go visit a friend of mine. I said, no, nah, man, I don't want to visit no friends. I need to really get home. My mama's probably worried about me. I appreciate what you're doing for me. You think you could just, you know, take me home now? Can we go? He says, well, okay. So we start driving. But immediately he stops in front of this house, and he gets out of the car. And I'm going, oh, man, what's going on now? So he goes up to this house and a guy comes out, and obviously this is his friend, and I notice right away that the friend looks as juicy as he does. I'm going, oh, hell no. Two of them? I don't know. So I'm kind of like waving my arm out of the window and sticking my head out because I want to get his attention, like, come on, man, I need to go. So he finally comes to the car and he says, well, do you want to get out and socialize with us? No, man, I don't want to get out of the car and socialize with nobody. I need to get home. So he gets in the car, we start driving, and then he suggests to me, hey, you want to get something to eat? So I'm thinking, well, I do have the munchies. <laughs> so I suggest to him, let's go to Triangles over in Churchill to get one of them good bologna burgers. So, you know, he says, uh, okay, but I also know that Triangles is only a couple of blocks from the house, and I'm already plotting my escape. So as soon as we start driving, he starts going in the wrong direction again. And I know right then, we're never going to go to Churchill. And now I'm thinking, this guy is so soft and so juicy looking, but what is he up to? Maybe he's going to surprise me. Maybe he has a gun. Maybe he has a knife. Maybe we're going to stop somewhere and some other guys are going to get in the car. So now I'm starting to worry and now I'm starting to put my plan into place. And I'm thinking to myself, as soon as this car stops or slows down near a stoplight or red light, 
I'm jumping the hell out. I'm going to run through some alleys between some houses. He ain't never going to catch me. Doesn't matter how far away I am, I'm getting the hell away from here. So the car stops at a stoplight. And I immediately think to myself, I'm getting ready to pull up on the handle, throw my shoulder to the door, and get the hell out of here. So I looked at the guy, and I went, fuck you, man. And I shoved my shoulder to the door. The damn door doesn't open. So he's grabbing at me going, what are you trying to do? Why are you trying to get away? And the car is starting to move real slowly and it's starting to swerve and we're hitting the horn and I'm trying to fight at him and grab at him and the car stops at a corner and it's a group of guys standing on the corner and I yell out to the guys, help, help, this fucking dude won't let me out of his car, help. But the dudes can't really hear me through the window. It sounds kind of muffled and all they see is just two dudes on top of each other in the car and they just start laughing and shit. So he starts trying to drive again, and the car is swerving, and I'm hitting at him and hitting at him, and I'm really starting to get the best of him, and I'm beating the shit out of him in the small confines of this car to finally the car comes to a rest on the side of the road. But I still can't get out of my door, so I got to crawl over him to get out of the car, but as I crawl over him, he's holding on to me. So I start biting his damn ear. So I'm biting it and chewing on it and biting it and chewing on it. And I don't know if it was just maybe instinctively, but at some point, or because I had the munchies, but at some point, I bit into his ear, chewed, and I swallowed it. Oh, come on, come on. So he started screaming. And you know, he tried to put his fingers in my mouth. And I bit into his damn fingers too. And I wedged my teeth into the spaces between his fingers. He let the hell go then. So I managed to get the car door open, but I had to punch him and back kick him all the way out the car. But at that point, he looked like he had had enough. He was done with the damn fight. But I had, one of my shoes had came off and I left it in the car. So I, I reached back to get my shoe and so he grabbed me by the shirt. He wouldn't let me go. So I had to pull him out of the car and I was stomping him and punching on him and stomping on him and punching him. And a bunch of people started coming around because of the honking of the horn, the swerving of the car, the noise, the screaming, drew a lot of attention. People started to come and almost simultaneously, two police patrol cars pulled up. And I thought, thank God, damn, the nightmare is over. They're going to get this freak off the street and at a minimum, I'm going to get a ride home. The police got out. And the guy started screaming, help, help, he's trying to rob me, help, help. I said, I'm not trying to rob him, he won't let me out of his car. The police said, you are out of the fucking car. Put your hands up. And they drew on me. I'm nervous, I'm shaking in my boots. The people who had gathered around were starting to complain and talk shit to the police because they wanted to know, what are you doing with that boy? Why won't you ask us no questions? We're trying to explain to you what happened. So they was getting into it with the police and then recklessly and thoughtlessly, I took off and started running. They couldn't catch me. I must have went through every alley, every back way, between every yard, from the West End, Richmond, all the way back to Churchill. It took me hours and hours to get home. In fact, I didn't get home until the sun was starting to come up. And despite the fact I had eaten a piece of ear, <laughs> I still had the munchies. <laughs> and what started off as a short trip turned out to be a long ride. Thank you.
Let's get out of here. Let's get out. Let's get out of here. 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 Let's just get out of here. Get out of here. I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. So my partner John and I, we're on a hike. It's 2009, it's a really hot day in August, uh, but I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt to cover the track marks on my arms. I'm addicted to crystal meth, but shh, it's a secret. Shortly into the first incline, an incline that wouldn't have phased me about a year and a half before, I feel winded, and I feel like all this, this tingly feeling in my chest, and I'm obsessed and thinking that I'm actually gonna have a heart attack. Uh, but I can't be honest about any of this, so I lash out. You said this was gonna be a pleasant mountain hike. John stops and looks at me. Pleasant is the name of the mountain. We're hiking on Pleasant Mountain. <laughs> I told you this before we left. Lately, he tells me a lot of things I don't hear. We'd moved to Maine several months beforehand, and in that time, he'd already gotten a new job. He was looking into ways, doing a lot of research on how we could start a farming business together. He's worried about how we're gonna pay the mortgage two years from now. He also does a lot of wondering, like, why does it take me all day to run the most simple errand? Why can't I get up in the morning? What's with all the blood stains on my shirt sleeves? He thinks I'm depressed. He keeps saying things to me like, you need to exercise more. And I'm like, I'm gonna get right on that. <laughs> Great idea. So then I go to Walmart and disappear for the rest of the day. When I'm in the car, I drive off somewhere and I go shoot up in really dodgy places like parking lots and department store restrooms. I'm in a hurry when I do this. I've got shaky hands. This is not the way you want to handle a syringe. I miss the vein a lot and end up with like these really large kind of tennis ball sized abscesses on my arms. And they hurt, but not as much as the fact that I realized that I just wasted a fucking high. That really hurts. When I do hit the vein, the rush is like the DSL of highs. It's like the total sweep cut in the movie where I go from zero to let's fuck in like five seconds. My clothes all but like fly off of me and I start walking around feeling like sexy and I'm just like, all right, y'all, let's do this. Which is kind of a problem when you're in Walmart. <laughs> 
sometimes I finally, like, you know, I don't get home until really late at night, and so I crawl into bed, or I sneak into bed, and I stare at the ceiling, and I try to regulate my breathing, and I feel every second pass. Anytime my partner gets close, I scoot away. I don't want him to feel how sweaty I am, and I'm worried that he can actually hear my heart beating. It's pumping so loudly. I'm finally falling asleep just as he's getting up, and then when I finally get up, like at noon, he looks at me, just, he's like, will you please start exercising more? He's so in denial, we're both so in denial. And here we are, and we're trying to hike up this hill together. It's this beautiful, beautiful summer day. And all my partner really wants to do is just hike up this hill with me. Up until recently, I'd been playing tennis, I'd been riding bikes, I'd been working out. If I can't make it up this measly little hill, this pleasant mountain, then I'm confirming that something is just undeniably fucked up. So I turn around, and I head back to the car, and he keeps going alone. And when he gets to the top of the mountain, he takes out his phone, and he snaps a selfie, and he sends it to me. And when I see the look on his face, it's heartbreaking. It says, I shouldn't be up here alone. A year later, I take the dog, I hop in the car, and I disappear for a week. Thanks to a certain website that I won't mention, I find an ongoing orgy happening in a cottage in a small seaside main town. It's hosted by the local psychic. He and I smoke meth, and, you know, he looks at me and he's like, I see the number seven above you, and I'm like, dude, there are seven people in my family. <laughs> and he's like, well, it's really interesting that you say that, because I think I see your mother, and I'm like, my mom's fucking here? Can she come back when I have clothes on and I'm not holding a crack pipe? When I'm high, and he's, you know, he opens up a door, and there's just orginess happening, and, uh... I kind of disrobe and get into the fray and get lost in chemical sex for a few hours or a couple of days. I can't really remember. This is after chaining, you know, leashing my dog to a dining room table. And at some point when I come to, I'm like, I gotta find my dog. And I go to the dining room table and she's not there. And we look all throughout the house and I look under the bed and there's my English bulldog, my sweet puppy, just gnawing away at a dildo. <laughs> and when I pull it away from her, I see that she's eaten half of it. And it looks like, you know, kind of like Hedwig's angry inch. It's just like this, <laughs> this nub with testicles. I hand it to the host, the psychic, and he looks at it, and with great sadness, he says, my favorite dildo. <laughs> I get out of the house, and I drive around, and days pass, hours go by. I, I don't really remember exactly what happened. All I know is that I ended up in an ER in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and shortly after that, the cops found me in a rest stop on I-95. I was hyperventilating and barefoot. I had bruises all over my arms, still a hospital band on my wrist. 
a cop told me they were going to have to search my car, and I was just like, look, you know, search my car, but there's just a ton of porn in it. And he was like, it's okay as long as it's not kids' stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but it's really embarrassing, you know? Somehow, the idea of them pulling out a tote bag full of dirty syringes was nowhere near as humiliating as them finding DVDs with names like, all about cocks, <laughs> with an exclamation point. It was a very comprehensive study. <laughs> the cop cuffs me, and he brings me to the Kittery police station, which is not exactly like the mean streets, but still, I was being arrested. I'm booked for possession and furnishing a hypodermic needle, and when he uncuffs me and releases me, I have this feeling that something may finally be finished. Like I'm coming to maybe to the end of something. And I actually have to restrain myself from hugging him. Um, he was also very attractive. <laughs> he was completely hot. So in rehab, I learned how to sleep again. I sleep for an entire week and I start eating food again. And uh, look, I'm not going to lie to you and say that I went to some like girl interrupted like institution covered with like cold white tile and with German nurses and everything. I'm also not going to tell you that I went to some like David Carr like inner city place where there was some Samuel L. Jackson guy shaking me and saying, "This is life and motherfucking death, man." <laughs> I went to a really nice rehab in Arizona in the desert. There was a swimming pool. Um, we got acupuncture. <laughs> it was great for, you know, my old needle thing. Um, <laughs> then we got massages because the acupuncture was really stressful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was desert, so there was like big skies and all of these technicolor sunsets and everything. And... You know, by the time that John arrived for family week, I was so chilled out. I was like, gosh, he is going to love it here. And when he arrives, I give him this huge hug, but I can see that he's visibly shaken, and he cuts our hug short. And then that's when I realize I've got another hospital band on, I've got a name tag on, and I've grown a full beard because I don't have access to razor blades because, shit, I'm in rehab. I'm in a fucking mental institution. The next day, they give us an assignment, the two of us. We're supposed to draw two pictures. One illustrates how we are now, the state we're in now, and a second picture that illustrates the way we want things to be. John shows two stick figures at the bottom of a very steep, steep hill. One stick figure is holding on to the handle of a little wagon cart. And he's looking up the hill, ready to pull the cart up. Inside the cart is the second stick figure, who's reclined and lying in the cart. He's smoking, he's unshaven, he's got headphones on, and he's looking the other way. So I, I don't think I need to tell you guys which one I am. <laughs> okay, that's good. In his second picture, two more stick figures. They're riding a tandem bike on a flat road. And you can't tell them apart. And John looks at me and says, 
You can't tell who's leading the way. You can't tell who's doing all the work. Coming home from rehab is really weird in the sense that when I was there, I felt like I was, you know, it, when you don't have food and sleep for a while and then suddenly you get them, you know, it's this very profound, immediate sense of change. Like, oh my God, I've just, you know, there was all these people there who would, you know, a lot of like fashionistas would come to this place and like they'd show up just like these sort of Tim Burton looking, you know, <laughs> things. And they were like, I work in fashion. And then they'd leave and they'd be like, you know, I've always wanted to work with children. <laughs> and that was me. I was like, I'm going to work with substance abuse people. I think I found my calling. But of course, you get home and like everything's exactly the same. And you just immediately slump and you're just like, oh, God, you know. So I slumped. I sat around. I didn't do half the things I pledged I was going to do in my exit interview. And wouldn't you know, I used. And I used a couple of times. And on the way home from my last, the last time I used, I was crying and driving. Have you ever driven and cried at the same time? It's not easy. <laughs> not easy. And I mean, it's not just like, you know, this. It's like sob shit, you know? Like, I was like, I'm going to get in a wreck. Um, I knew that it was just very obvious what I'd been up to, so it was like there was really no lying, covering anything up. And I got home, and when I said I got high again, I used again. I was expecting him to just finally be like, okay, I can't, I can't, I can't, no more, no more. But instead, he just was like, you haven't been trying. You haven't been doing anything. He's like, you know you can do this. You just have to work at it. So I listened to him, you know, for once. I actually heard everything he said. And hitting rock bottom is a really weird place to be because on the one hand, you've totally fucked your entire life up to that point. So it feels absolutely impossible that you're ever going to get back on your feet again. But the good thing is that you've lowered the bar so low <laughs> that like the smallest amount of effort just radiates through your entire world. You know, if you get up like before 10 o'clock, like everybody is like... <laughs> and then if you take a shower, everyone's like... Showering. And then if you say you're going to go outside, everybody just flips the fuck out. <laughs> so at one point, I actually woke up earlier than John. And I got up, and I made the coffee, and I was like, God, I love waffles. So I made some waffles. And like he woke up to the smell of coffee, not the scent of chemical sweat next to him. It was the smell of coffee, and I was like, oh, I just made some waffles. And like the next day, he like looked at me and he was like, you know, when you made waffles for me, it made me so happy. And I was just like, dude, it's fucking waffles. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I also took up photography uh, in this time. It was like, you know, everyone in rehab was like, find a new thing, you know? Don't go home and, like, play guitar again, you know? 
I don't play guitar, I DJ'd on DJ software, which is so much more pathetic, but anyway. <laughs> um, I took up photography and it was like this whole new thing and I immediately got obsessed with it and it was Christmas Eve and I was going through all these pictures that I'd taken of our life and I looked at him and I was like, you know, we have a great life, you know that? And he was like, that's the best gift you could have ever given me this year, just gratitude. And so in August of 2012, it was another one of those hot days and we decided to give Pleasant Mountain another shot because I'd never made it to the top before. And I put on a short sleeve shirt and at some point I started to get winded. I was like, is this the point where I asked to turn back? And he looked at me and he was like, we are so past that point, that was so long ago. And we get to the top and there's all these people hanging out because it was a beautiful day. So it was like everyone was hiking up there and there's all these people up there hanging and catching their breath and everything. And I went over and said hi to them and was taking pictures and he's kind of standing back. And I'm like, what's going on with him? And I finally go over to him. I'm like, do you want to come say hi to these people? He's like, no, let's go over here and talk. And so we go over and we sit on this rock and there's like this amazing like view. And just the phrase, let's talk, I'm like, oh shit, what did I do? Did I not like hike up the mountain fast enough? If I, am, I, am I like, I don't know, I'm like, was, was I in the cart again? And he looked at me and he said, uh, so I was wondering if you wanted to get married. <laughs> so that's actually the way what that sound I felt on the inside right in that moment like it was just like I was just inside my, my stomach was just this gigantic little soft oh I felt really giddy and like lightheaded for a moment and I felt like kind of queasy and I felt like really aroused and horny and I was like I was like Jesus Christ I feel like I'm high on meth here <laughs> but it was like better because it wasn't without all the teeth grinding and psychosis. So. <laughs> and so we hugged and we kissed and it was like really wonderful and it was intense and kind of clumsy and I looked at him and I was like, did you just propose? And he was like, yeah, I think I did. And it's sort of like, we're already kind of like looking back on it, you know? It's like it's already happened, but it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. So I grabbed my camera and I hold it out in front of us, and we kind of cuddle in close. And I snap the picture. And in it, we're both smiling. And you almost kind of almost can't tell us apart. And you certainly can't tell who pulls who up the mountain. And you don't know who got up there first. Thank you, guys. It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me ooh, 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 ooh. And I'm 
this week's episode folks this is the great nina simone behind me now and we just heard from my dear friend for about 25 years now smith galtney smith is as i said before he's a writer a photographer a comedian living in maine you can find him at smithgaltney.com that's s-m-i-t-h-g-a-l-t-n-e-y.com It was so moving to have Smith come and share such a personal story on our stage in Brooklyn at the Bell House. And so many of our mutual friends from, you know, who I was out with every night in my 20s (laughs) came to see the show. So that was just a super memorable occasion for us. I'm going to read to you now where Risk is appearing next. We're at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles on October 15th. On October 26th, we are back again at the Bell House in New York. On November 11th, we're in New Orleans. We're still taking pictures for that show, New Orleans. The theme is Legends. You can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. The very next night, November 12th, we're in Baltimore, still taking pitches for that one. The theme that night is Wounded, Pitch Us Baltimore. November 18th, we're in Chicago, Illinois. The theme is Frenzy, still taking pitches for that one. Don't forget that all of our storytelling training can be found at thestorystudio.org. That includes one-on-one training with me over Skype or our entire courses that you can take, you can watch videos and take them in your own time, or our in-person workshops with groups and even our corporate workshops with entire staffs. That's at thestorystudio.org. And as I said before, you can always find us online at Risk Show on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, I am at the Kevin Allison. Follow us. We want to talk to you there. All right, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I still had the munchies. <laughs>